0: Good evening. It is a pleasure to be here with all of you this evening and to worship our triune God together. Uh, it's indeed a pleasure to bring you the word of God this evening. Our text comes from Zechariah chapter 1 verses 18 through 21. Now when I read it, I'm also going to read the first 6 verses of this chapter as context before I read the passage. I would like to give just a little bit of background for us. Now, uh, for those of you who... Uh, Zechariah is not the most common book that we read or study or uh, preach through. And so it's the second to last book of the Old Testament. Just, uh, just before the Gospel of Matthew. You'll find it two books back. Uh, the book of Zechariah. And we'll, we'll read chapter 1. But first, just a little bit of background information. As you well know... God in the Old Testament redeemed Israel from Egypt, brought them through the wilderness and into the land flowing with milk and honey. And He told them that if they would be obedient to Him, that they would enjoy life in the land. But if they were not obedient to His commands, that they would be cast out of the land. Well, you know the story very well, don't you? They were not obedient to their covenant God. They were, in fact, rebellious towards Him, and they worshipped the idols of the nations. And so God brought to pass the curse that He threatened against them. He used Babylon to conquer them, to destroy the temple and deport them off into exile. Well, Zechariah's generation is now coming out of this exile. Persia had come in and defeated Babylon. And Cyrus the Great, Persia's king, allowed the Israelites, allowed Judah to return to the promised land to rebuild the temple and to dwell once again in the promised land. So, With that being said, let us turn now to our text, Zechariah chapter 1. And I'm going to begin by reading the first six verses, and then we will uh, start reading or pick back up in verse 18 as we read the second vision that Zechariah receives. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Please give it your full attention. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius... The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways indeed, so He has dealt with us. Now look to verse 18. And I lifted my eyes and saw and behold four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? He said, These are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Will you please bow your heads with me as we ask the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of His Word. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your revelation that was written for us and for the prophets of old who had us in mind as they wrote and as they spoke of the subsequent glories of Christ and also of his sufferings. Lord, indeed, they had us in mind as they wrote. And we pray that your Spirit will apply to us today that which was written for our benefit, that we might know our great covenant God, and that we might know how to live and please Him all of our days. We Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our churches, Evangelical Fellowship, Westview Christian and Christ's Covenant Presbyterian Church, or maybe uh, other churches who uh, you may be a part of this evening. You see, all of our churches exist as they do today because of the Protestant Reformation. The reformers looked around the church in their day and realized that it did not bear the marks of a true church. They determined that the church of Rome was apostate. And in fact compared it to apostate Israel in the Old Testament. And so they eventually found it a necessity to leave the Roman Catholic Church. Christ's church throughout history has faced trials and tribulations, temptations from the evil one to fall away, to turn away from him and to apostatize. And sadly, we have seen times when she has, in part, gone astray. We have seen attacks from the outside and schisms from within, all of which are attempts from our foes to make us the church turn away from our only lord and savior Jesus Christ now the elect can never fall away but individuals within the church like the seeds that fall along the thorns and the rocky soil can indeed fall away and churches can have their lampstands removed If we learn anything from the Old Testament example of Israel, it is that God will judge His people. Unfortunately, the Church of Rome has not learned this lesson. Perhaps the Reformation, in a certain sense, was a form of judgment for them. But we might also say that present-day Protestants or Evangelicals We too sometimes need to heed this warning as well. Much of the church today should let the exile of Israel be a warning to be faithful to God and to God alone. The people of God who returned to the land after the Babylonian exile would have understood this lesson very well. As they returned home, they would have seen the walls of Jerusalem and the temple lying in rubble and Jerusalem herself destroyed and ravaged. That's what the people of Zechariah's day would have seen as they returned home. You see, God had used Babylon as his agent of judgment to destroy Jerusalem and to take Judah off into exile because of their idolatrous sins that had led them to apostasy. And so in the introduction to this book, the book of Zechariah, God begins by saying, The Lord was very angry with your father's. Therefore say to them, he tells Zechariah to say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And he goes on to remind them of what happened when their fathers did not listen to the prophets. He asked them, Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes which I commanded, my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? You see, the Lord is reminding them of His righteous judgment against the sins of their fathers. But notice that in the midst of this warning is the good news of a gracious call To return to the Lord. And in verse 6, Zechariah tells us how the people of his day responded to such a gracious call. It says, so they repented. See, The people of Judah show us what we are to do, what the church is to do. Anytime that we fall into sin. Repent. Repent and return to the Lord. Well, this is the context into which Zechariah prophesies. And the first half of the book is basically prophecies that Zechariah receives at night through visions. We are looking at the second night vision. Tonight, which begins in verse 18, it is a vision of horns and craftsmen. And he begins to describe this night vision saying, And I lifted my eyes and saw and behold four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And this might seem like a a strange vision. For Zechariah to see four horns, which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. With respect to these four horns, we actually have quite a bit of biblical imagery. A horn is oftentimes representative of a nation or of a nation's power. This would be consistent then with verse 21 when Zechariah is told that the four craftsmen have come to cast down the, what? The horns of the nations. Now, some would like to ascribe four different nations to these four horns. And though this is a possibility, it is more likely that the four horns represent all of the nations of the earth at that time. Many... More than four nations were involved in Israel's exile. The Assyrians, for example, conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. Babylon conquered the southern kingdom around 587 B.C. And others were involved as well. Edom, Phoenicia, Philistia, and the Ammonites. Now Persia is ruling over the people of God though they had allowed them to return to the land. And so it would be hard to assign four specific nations to these four horns. And I I could say much here to defend this, but for the sake of time I must move forward. We will look ahead though in just a moment to see why the number four is so important in this vision. But again, I say that it represents all of the nations that existed on the earth at the time of Zechariah. And before we begin to look at why the number four is so important, let's first ask the question, why the symbolism of a horn at all? Well, as I have already mentioned, a horn is often used to speak of a nation's power. In the ancient Near East, the raw power of a horned animal lifting up its horns, the horns of its head, was one way to describe that nation's brute force and power. Now, I am an avid hunter, I love hunting and when I was younger, my father taught me to take horns from, from a, a deer that had previously been harvested and to take those horns and clash the two sets of horns together in order to mimic the sound of two males fighting, clashing their heads together, clashing their horns together in a battle. And you did this because it would likely attract any males in the area who would want to challenge the winner of that battle. You're trying to drive them in in order to be able to harvest your own animal. I don't know this. I've never killed a deer, so I've been hunting many times. I'm not sure that this works. But I I would imagine Russ or maybe John Kohler or someone of the like could tell you that this does actually work. But you see the imagery here, the symbolism of horns clashing together in battle. Now, when this imagery is used in Scripture, they're probably not thinking about two deer, but more like a bull or a goat or a ram who ducks down and attacks its prey with an upward thrust of the horns on its head. In fact, The word in our text, the word scattered, is used in several occasions in Scripture for Israel being scattered like sheep. That is what we have here. A picture of wild, horned beasts representing the nations attacking and scattering the sheep which represent God's people. You see, the horns of the nations have been lifted high against Yahweh and the people of God who have been scattered and attacked to the point that they no longer can lift up their heads. In fact, the text says that they now hang their heads low. Meredith Klein, in his book, Glory in Our Midst, comments on this passage saying, By itself the imagery of exalting the horn signifies simply the exertion of power and achievement of success or attainment of glory, while the cutting off and casting down of one's horn symbolizes defeat and impotence. An equivalent image is that of lifting up the head, which is the bearer of the horns, with its opposite being unable to lift up the head. Combining the two forms of the metaphor, Zechariah introduces into the meaning of lifting up the horns the specific connotation of ferocity, hostility, and tyranny by qualifying the action as an animal like attack against Judah that devastated it and rendered it helpless. End quote. This, then, is the imagery for the horns that have scattered Judah. But there's another layer to this imagery, which explains the reason why there are four horns. You see, the might of a nation was often depicted in a religious context. That is, the nation was as powerful as It's God or gods, the gods that they religiously worshipped. When the people in Zechariah's day would have heard or read this vision, they would have immediately thought of the four-horned altar that is spoken of on a number of occasions in the Old Testament. For example, in Exodus chapter 27 when God describes how the bronze altar is to be built, he says, The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits, and you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. The same goes for the altar of incense in Exodus chapter 30. There's also a description of horned altars in Exodus 21, 1 Kings 1, verse 50, and also 1 Kings 2, verse 28. And so an altar imagery is almost completely thrust upon us in this passage or in this vision. What makes this imagery so interesting is that it takes us back to Babylon's beginnings. Babylon, the land, the, the, the nation who had conquered Judah and took them into exile, uh, this imagery takes us back to Babylon's beginnings. which you probably know began at the Tower of Babel. You remember that the people of Genesis 11 attempted to build a tower that would reach up to the heavens. Now this tower was what we might call a ziggurat, if you have an ESV Bible study, it'll show you an image or a picture of that ziggurat. It's a tower or temple-like structure. And a ziggurat in the ancient Near East was thought to be a colossal altar. Or said in reverse, an altar was seen as a micro version of a ziggurat. What were the people in Genesis 11 doing building this giant altar up to the heavens. Well, in essence, their ziggurat building scheme was an attempt to gain heaven by human works. And this is evident in their statement there in Genesis chapter 11. Come, let us make bricks. Let us build "...ourselves a city and tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make ourselves a name, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth." And so rather than attaining heaven by the redemptive offer of grace that God had promised only eight chapters earlier in chapter 3 of Genesis... They sought a rebellious attempt to gain heaven by human works. So what does this have to do with a four-horned altar? Well, their ziggurat was a giant four-horned altar. Babylon's very own mythological creation story illumines this notion Their creation story actually begins with the Tower of Babel. However, they did not like the true version of it, as we have for us recorded in Scripture. And so they perverted the truth and created a mythological understanding of their beginnings. It is recorded in an ancient document known as Enuma Elish. And in this mythological account, their god Marduk battled and defeated all the other gods and then created heaven and earth. And at the center of the universe was Babylon, where they built a ziggurat tower for Marduk. It's the Tower of Babel. Their twisted version of our true biblical account They named that ziggurat Esajila, which literally translates, listen, the house of the lifting up of the head. And if that doesn't say enough, this ancient document also notes that once Marduk was enthroned there at that tower, that they looked up to its horns. Now, if Genesis chapter 11 and this Enuma Elish perversion agrees on anything, it is that this event undeniably marks a rebellious lifting up of the horns against Yahweh, the one true and living God. Now, flash forward to Judah's exile into Babylon. And what we have is a revival of this type of rebellion. The prophet Jeremiah spoke about Babylon's efforts in conquering Judah. And in chapter 51, verse 53, he wrote, Though Babylon should mount up to heaven, and though she should fortify her strong height, yet destroyers would come from me against her declares the Lord. See, Babylon was seeking rebellion once again on a world level. And you can read about it in the book of Daniel. They lifted up their horns in enmity against Judah and in blasphemous idolatry against the Lord himself. But God would bring judgment against Babylon. And not only against her, but for every nation that troubled Judah during her exile and now during her return to the land, even Babylon, Assyria, Edom, Phoenicia, Philistia, the Ammonites, and now Persia. God would judge them all. And that is what the back end of this vision is all about. The great reversal that God would bring about for His people. See, after seeing the four horns, Zechariah sees four craftsmen. Craftsmen were not necessarily the elite or high up in society, but were merely humble artisans with various specialties, working with wood, stone, and metal. That's what a craftsman is. And so the imagery of this vision consists of humble agents that are specialized to cut off the horns of the idolatrous altars that have exalted themselves above the Lord and the Lord's people. This vision that Zechariah had would have given them confidence that God was going to once again lift their heads high. And bring low the heads of those that had exalted themselves. What wonderful news this vision would have been to the people in Zechariah's day. The nations had given them much to hang their heads low about. Israel had just come out of 70 years of exile in Babylon. Jerusalem and the temple were in shambles. They had already returned to the land, but they were not yet fully free of the rule and control of Persia. But Zechariah's second night vision strengthened their confidence in God's desire to right the wrongs that they were presently experiencing. The four humble craftsmen assured them of God's commitment to justice. And just as we have not identified four specific nations in this vision, so we do not have four specific craftsmen that we need to identify. What we need to understand is that there was one craftsman for every horn in the vision. And this is communicating that God always intervenes and has the perfect response to every enemy that comes against His people. Think for just a moment about where those kingdoms that oppressed Israel are now. They have been removed from the face of the earth. Every one of them, new ones perhaps have risen up in their place, but each one of them received the judgment of the Lord. Beloved, God's people will always, until the final judgment, have enemies that seek to destroy God's kingdom, His church. We have an enemy that is armed with cruel hate. God is able to respond to and defeat those enemies. He is able to bring about a reversal to all of the injustices brought about by our greatest enemy, both sin and Satan. The New Testament is not silent about how this is accomplished. Mary, the mother of Jesus, recognized that God was bringing about this great reversal through the one that she was carrying in her womb, having been conceived by the overshadowing of the Spirit. And in Luke chapter 1, verses 51 and 52, in what is known as the Magnificat of Mary, She states, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Zechariah also saw Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of this second vision. Not Zechariah of the Old Testament, but the other Zechariah of Scripture. John the Baptist's father. Knowing that his son would be the forerunner to the Messiah, he spoke these words just a few verses later from Mary's Magnificat. In Luke 1, verses 68 and 69, he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people And has raised up a horn of salvation for us. My friends, Jesus Christ is the horn of our salvation. The meager carpenter's son. Believe it or not, a humble craftsman in his own right is the one who has and is defeating all of our enemies. He is the one who casts off all the horns of injustice. But he did not do so with brute force, as might be expected. Just as a craftsman is of Humble means so Christ defeated our enemies through humility. His victory came through the greatest injustice that the world has ever known. Though he was without sin and guiltless, he was sentenced to die by hanging on a cursed tree. But it was this very injustice... That brought justice into the world for you and me. For The wrath of God against our sins was satisfied as it was laid upon Christ. And on the third day he rose from the grave and proclaimed victory over our enemies. Colossians chapter 2 speaks of the accomplishment of both of these things, of both our sins being forgiven and our enemies being defeated. In verses 13 through 15, Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, in Christ. This second night vision had a great message for the people of God in Zechariah's day. I think it has a great message for us today as well. You see, I think that we find ourselves in a very similar experience to the people in Zechariah's day. See, just as Israel experienced joy by being freed from exile, yet still feeling the strain of being ruled over by others. So we too feel the joy of being freed from our exile, from our bondage to sin and Satan, yet still feel the tension, of the power of those forces still active in this world today. And so we see ourselves in... A bit of a similar situation. But I think it's really a better position than what they were in. My friends, we rejoice with great joy the victory of Christ that He has won at the cross against sin and Satan. Because of this, we know that God has already defeated those forces and powers behind all the injustices of the world. And so when you see attacks against the church from the outside and schisms from within, when you see political and social structures in the world that reward the wicked and oppress the helpless, or even in your own life, when you are unjustly fired from a position at work, Or when someone with less qualifications than you gets the job. When you see a marriage, whether it is your own or someone else's, fall apart and end in divorce. When you're discriminated against for whatever reason, your race, your sex, your age, your economic status. Whatever injustice you see or experience. Be encouraged to know that your God intervenes in history for the sake of His people. Be encouraged by your Savior's work to make all things new and right. Do not be distressed. Do not hang your head low, but repeat the words of David in Psalm 3, verse 3. You, O Lord are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. What a prayer of encouragement this is when we face the injustices of this life. Beloved, the temptation is so great for us to respond to these injustices, evil for evil. To seek vengeance upon those who oppress and persecute God's people. Those who promote the injustices of this world. But remember that vengeance is of the Lord. He will bring the wicked to justice. But with this in mind, also know that the Lord does use His church as an agent for justice in this world. The Lord will use you to help bring justice into this world. But just as Jesus won victory through humility, so the weapons that He has given us are humble weapons as well. We wage war by the humble Preaching of the foolishness of the cross. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 3? He said, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What brings change into this world? What else but the gospel of Jesus Christ? If you think about it, did He not change your very own life? when your horn was lifted up against him in rebellion. So he has the power to do for others. Preach the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Who else can bring justice into the world I proclaim to you none other but Jesus Christ, the horn of our salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great divine craftsman, Jesus Christ. That he indeed, when the time was right, came into the world through humble means and into an estate of humiliation and suffered unto death so that we might redeem be redeemed from our sins and from Satan lord we thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus and may we also now following after Christ be agents of justice in this world By simply proclaiming that good news. We know that your spirit and word have power. To call your people to yourself. And so Lord we pray that we will be faithful to its message. and We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.